ever wondered how we went from imagining space travel to landing on the moon? Or from dreaming about sentient machines to having Siri in your pocket? Join me as I explore crazy concepts and incredible ideas from science fiction and how scientists and inventors have turned them into reality. This is episode one, the one with the internet. Let's talk about something relevant, something modern, the internet. The internet is really, really great. Just this morning, I checked when the bus was arriving at my bus stop, opened my email to see where my sports games were this weekend, transferred money on my banking app, checked the bus times, logged into my university portal to check my grades, scanned Facebook, saw one of my friends had bought a new car, and rechecked the bus times before realising I'd missed the bus and had to ask for a lift to work. Yes, the internet is everywhere. Free-to-air television is being replaced by streaming services such as Stan and Netflix. People now message through apps that use your internet instead of your text credit, and the telephone is virtually unheard of. For people growing up today, it's hard to imagine the digital stone age that existed before the internet. The story of the internet starts over a hundred years ago, in a place that may surprise you. In 1898, author Samuel Langhorne Clemens planned a short story titled From the London Times of 1904. It's not a science fiction story per se. It's a crime story, along the lines of Isaac Asimov's The Dying Knight, where the inventor of a new and fantastic device is murdered. By the way, if you like science fiction mixed with crime fiction, you should definitely read Asimov's mystery series, where figuring out who done it lies in a judicious application of scientific principles to the facts of the case. But back to Clements, or as he was better known, Mark Twain. That's right, the father of American literature, author of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, had a side hustle in science fiction. Now, Twain was fascinated by science. He was an early adopter of many new inventions. He was one of the first people in his area to have a telephone, and there's some debate over whether he was the first significant author to use a typewriter to write a novel. He liked to hang out in the lab with his good friend, Nikola Tesla, who did not invent the electric car, but did invent the alternating current electricity system that is still used today to power your home. And Twain didn't reach the lofty heights of science fame that Tesla did. His most noteworthy invention was probably the self-adhesive scrapbook, patented in 1873, and as far as I know, no one's named a car after him. But his science fiction stories were novel. But on with the story. From the London Times of 1904, written towards the end of Mark Twain's life, describes a new invention called a telelectroscope. As soon as the Paris contract released the telelectroscope, it was delivered to public use and was soon connected with the telephonic systems of the whole world. The improved limitless distance telephone was presently introduced and the daily doings of the globe made visible to everybody and audibly discussable too by witnesses separated by any number of leaks. So this description isn't quite the internet. It's more globalised news run through a connected telephone system. But it's pretty impressive, especially when you consider that Twain was writing in 1898, just 22 years after Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, and only two years after Guillermo Marconi patented the radio. Television wouldn't be de developed by Philo Farnsworth until decades later in 1927. And let's be frank, I don't think anyone actually saw the internet coming. 
There are a lot of stories about technology as we now know, as radio, as television, as video calling. People wrote about connected machines, communications network, even encyclopedias in your pocket with large friendly letters stating don't panic on the cover. But as far as I can tell, no one predicted just how ubiquitous the internet would become. However, Twain did manage to predict how addictive vision on demand could be. Day by day and night by night, he called up one corner of the globe after another and looked upon its life and studied its strange sights and spoke with its people and realised that by grace of this marvellous instrument, he was almost as free as the birds of the air, although a prisoner under locks and bars. He seldom spoke and I never interrupted him when he was absorbed in amusement. Spookily accurate, right? If you've never experienced just how addictive watching ordinary people going about their lives can be, you obviously haven't seen reality television. But my favourite example of reality television is the Abbey Road webcam, which shows a constant stream of people replicating the iconic Beatles album cover. You won't have to wait long to see a group of people march onto the crossing and freeze, just long enough to take a photo, before sheepishly waving to the cars as they hurry across the road so traffic can continue. Anyway, Twain's short story from the London Times of 1904 is the earliest example of science fiction that I could find that was sufficiently close enough to the modern internet. There were a couple of other works I considered. Mary E. Bradley Lane's Mizora, serialised in the Cincinnati commercial newspaper in 1880 and 1881, described technologies we now know as video calls and television broadcasts. Edward Bellamy in his smash hit Looking Backwards in 1887 predicted debit cards spookily accurately, but the description he gave was of audio broadcasts of live performances and speeches, which is more like radio. And both of these are impressive, given that the radio wouldn't be invented until 1896 and television in 1927. But what I'm looking for is a globally connected network of information available on demand, and so far, Twain's the closest. So... How do we go from the fictional telelectroscope to the modern internet? Let's take a quick spin to the first half of the 20th century. Our first stop is in 1909, where another author more famous for their other works is penning a surprising piece of science fiction. You probably recognise E.M. Forster from such books as Howard's End, A Room with a View and Passage to India. And if you don't, I highly recommend reading them. There's a reason he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But one of his lesser-known short stories... The Machine Stops, was an almost dystopian view of a future where people live in self-contained, isolated cells and only connect socially through video or voice calls. It's disturbingly familiar to hear that in 2020, in these times of coronavirus and lockdown. Our next stop, in 1946, is a pretty remarkable book. It's called A Logic Named Joe, written by Murray Leinster, and follows one man's quest to track down and disconnect a rogue logic similar to an internet assistant like Siri. This rogue logic is, through a manufacturing defect, self-aware, and has connected all information held in the country's data tanks together to be able to answer any question asked of it. Questions like, how to make lots of money fast? And, how can I kill my wife without getting caught? And, how can I rob a bank and get away with it? It has the internet, it has internet censorship, and it has sentient machines. And it's a comedy. It's an excellent read. Skipping forward a little bit more, we come to Philip K. Dick, another science fiction giant. Now, he generally gets the credit for the first use of the word web to refer to a communications network in Souvenir, which is released in 1954. 
And then we get to 1957, with the second instalment of Isaac Asimov's famous robot series. I kept turning up references to the Naked Sun as a precursor to the internet here, and I kind of have to disagree. The Naked Sun is a whodunit, set in a society where people shun face-to-face -face contact in favour of communicating through holograms and 3D television. Now, I really love Asimov. The first science fiction book I ever read was Nightfall. But I don't think that what Asimov's describing here is really the internet. You have to remember, the television was old news by this point. So I'm going to say it's a no for me to Asimov here. Moving on to 1965, we meet Frank Herbert's Dune. Now, Dune is one of the best-selling science fiction novels of all time. The Dune universe has it all. Sequels, prequels, computer games, board games, television series, a film, and even songs. But what I'm interested in here is the Comnet or Communinet, the planetary communications network that's in Dune. It's a pretty good precursor to the modern internet, although it doesn't quite have the data tanks or rogue machines envisioned by Leicester. You can also find a reference to a network-linked personal digital assistance called a Joymaker in Frederick Pohl's The Age of the Pussyfoot, published in 1966. The remote access computer transponder, called the Joymaker, is your most valuable single possession in your new life. If you can imagine a combination of telephone, credit card, alarm clock, pocket bar, reference library and full-time secretary, you'll have sketched some of the functions provided by your Joymaker. Essentially, it is a transponder connecting you with the central computing facilities of the city in which you reside on a shared time self-programming basis. Shared time means that many other joymakers use the same central computer in Shogo, something like 10 million of them. Now, this joymaker sounds pretty much like a smartphone to me, and I'm not entirely sure how much I would call a smartphone a joymaker these days, but it's connected to a central computer network, much like the internet. And the early 1960s, though, is where science starts to play catch up with science fiction. Let's rewind a few years to let science catch up. Before the 1960s, most computers were pretty large, often taking up a whole room, and they were programmed with punch cards. The 1948 invention of the transistor, a type of electronic switch and amplifier, not only won its inventors the Nobel Prize in physics, but opened the door to miniaturization of electronic components and large-scale production of increasingly sophisticated components and used in things like telecommunications. And in 1960 or 1961, a scientist named Paul Buran was asked to investigate communications network for the US Air Force. Now, his research culminated in a set of 11 amazingly comprehensive papers published in 1964 on the concept of packet switching. I know, I know, what's packet switching? Well, textbooks will tell you that packet switching is a method of transmitting electronic data between computers, which went on to become one of the building blocks of the internet. But I like to think of packet switching as IKEA furniture. Let's say you want to buy a new bookshelf to put your books on. It'll have to be a big bookshelf because you like to read and you have a lot of books. So you head out to your local IKEA store on a quest to find the one true bookcase. Now, your bookcase, when you find it, doesn't come assembled. It's been split into multiple packages or packets to make it easier to store and carry. So you load the packages into your shopping trolley, scan them through the register, pay, load your precious cargo into your car and drive home. Once home, you get out your hammer and screwdriver and allen key and you build or reassemble your bookcase. 
In this analogy, the bookcase is the information you're transferring on the internet, that Instagram snap, or the latest TikTok dance challenge, or this podcast. And your house, where you're moving the information to, is really your smartphone or your router. And packet switching is one of the many cases in, scientists, in science where scientists working independently came up with remarkably similar ideas. Donald Davies, working at the National Physical Laboratory in the UK, independently published remarkably similar work to Barant's in 1965. And the name packet switching actually comes from Davies' work. Barant had given his work the catchy title of Distributive Adaptive Message Block Switching. Can't think why that didn't catch on. Anyway, by 1965, we had a system for letting computers talk to each other. And in 1969, a military-funded project in the US called the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, or ARPANET, successfully used packet switching to let computers talk to each other on a single network for the first time. Now, there's a great story here. The first message sent to Stanford University in California from the University of California, obviously also in California, crashed the system, resulting in only the first two letters of the word login being received successfully. They rebooted the network and successfully transferred the whole message about an hour later, but that's not as great a story. But there you go, one for the trivia buffs, the first message ever transferred on the internet was LO. And if you're ever having trouble with your computer, don't forget to turn it off and on again. Anyway, there were several different computer networks in the 1970s. ARPANET in the US, NPL in the UK, Cyclades in France, HMINet in Germany, and each had different flavours of packet switching. And at some point, someone had to invent a standard protocol for packet switching between networks of computers. That someone turned out to be two someones. In 1974, Robert Kahn and Vincent Cerf developed a prototype protocol called Transmission Control Protocol and Internet Protocol, or TCPIP. The TCP part, the Transmission Control Protocol, handles breaking down your information into smaller packets to transfer, and the IP part is the address you're sending the packets to, a GPS for internet data. The exciting thing about TCP IP is that it allows for the transmission of data between different networks of computers, not just from computers to computers. So to recap, in 1961, scientists started working on packet switching methods for transferring information between computers. Yuri Gagarin was the first human to complete an orbit of Earth, and the Berlin Wall was built. In 1969, we managed to get two computers to talk to each other for the first time. Man landed on the moon, and the Beatles released Abbey Road. In 1974, the first prototype of modern internet communications, TCPIP, was developed. Stephen King published his debut novel, Carrie, and Cyclone Tracy hit Darwin. The next few years after 1974 were spent refining the system from version 1 up to version 4. In 1976, we were able to connect two networks together. A year later, we could connect three. The full set of TCP IP version 4 would eventually be adopted into ARPANET in 1983. And all this time, while scientists were improving the protocols for computers to talk to each other, writers kept on writing. In 1975, John Brunner released Shockwave Writer, set in a dystopian future where pretty much everyone is hooked into a computer network, or Datanet. This book had several concepts that are pretty mainstream now, such as worms. According to a recent report, there were so many worms and counterworms loose in the data net now, the machines had been instructed to give them low priority unless they related to a medical emergency. 
The main character in Bronner's novel, Nick, is also pretty handy at hacking into data nets, and there's even a mention of catfishing and identity fraud. Healthy adults like yourself, capable of doing things that have never been done before, such as writing a complete new entity into the dark net over a regular V-phone. And Robert Heinlein, another superstar of science fiction, released Friday in 1982. And while I was a little disappointed with this book personally, among the concepts of artificial humans, super batteries and anti-gravity, you'll find a protonet which search terms to look up information. Now, Heinlein didn't really foresee the vast amount of useless junk that would eventually fill up the internet. It's pretty easy to imagine connecting to a library online, but I guess it's less easy to predict the endless cat videos and spam emails. But in 1983, ARPANET made the switch to adopt TCPIP as the primary protocol for transferring data, making it the default setting in the fledgling US data net system. A couple of other things happened in the early 1980s that would be critical for the rise of the internet. First, the development of the Ethernet, which was instrumental in the emergence of local area networks or LANs. And second, the increased use of fibre optic cabling and communications network, which meant that data could be transferred over longer distances before the signal broke down and you got that white sadly <laughs> noise. Oh, yeah. And in 1984, William Gibson published Neuromancer. A consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation by children being taught mathematical concepts. A graphic representation of data abstracted from banks of every computer in the human system. Unthinkable complexity. Now, I'll come back to William Gibson in a later episode when we talk about virtual reality in cyberspace. For now, this is a pretty good description of the internet, data connected from every computer on the planet. Now, at this point, what we had was a lot of different local area networks, computers in the same network connected together, for example, at a university or a company. And we had bulletin boards, the precursor to MySpace and Facebook and Reddit. They were text-based dial-in message boards. You could chat to people on bulletin boards or play text-based games or transfer files. And Ender's Game, written by Orson Scott Card in 1986, features Valentine and Peter Wiggins writing political analyses on the nets. Orson Scott Card might have been thinking of these bulletin boards when he wrote his book, but he got one thing right. People can be really influential and anonymous online. In today's terms, we'd call them bloggers or influencers. And in 1988, the first fiber optic transatlantic underseas cable was laid, speeding up connection between Europe and North America. And in 1989, commercial internet service providers popped up in Australia and the US. The internet was born. It's a funny thing, you know, when I was writing this, I was looking for world events to contextualise the scientific advancements that were happening at the time. And I know I've skipped over the developments in computing that were necessary before the birth of the internet could happen. We spent most of the 1940s to 1960s going from large mainframes that took up entire rooms to small mini, mini computers that were more affordable. But it is interesting that packet switching kicked off in 1961 when the Berlin Wall was built. And then in 1989, we got commercial ISPs when the Berlin Wall was torn down. There's still a lot more to this story. The invention of the World Wide Web in 1990, the invention of Wi-Fi in 1995, the rapid adoption of the internet between 2000 and 2009, and the story of how we ran out of IPv4 addresses and had to move to IPv6, skipping IPv5 in between. 
the emergence of social media, e-commerce and telecommuting, and the associated business and societal risk of cybercrime, malware and censorship. But that's all for today. And I've taken you from the earliest ideas of the internet in Victorian times to the first ISPs in 1989. Tune in next time to hear how we went from imagining fantastic ships in space to landing on the moon.